We are back. Welcome to another episode, a fresh episode of Sacred Cinema with me, your host, Jimmy Bernasconi on 2XXFM on the 98.3 frequency. This week's topic, making fun of actors. It's uh, been a while since um, a particular thing happened in the news, uh, but I want to keep talking about it. It's still on my mind. It's something that still interests me. Um, some people thought it was something trivial, that it was distracting us from the real issues. I think it was symbolic of something. Uh, and as a big movie fan, uh, and a big fan of Hollywood and actors and that whole industry, um, it, I mean, it really, I, I really couldn't stop thinking about it. Of course... Uh, you know what that is, uh, that of course would be uh, the announcement of Ice Age 6, a uh, huge moment for us film buffs. No, um, it was the slap. Get my wife's name out of that. Wow, dude, that whole thing. Big Willie versus Chris Rock. I can't stop thinking about it. And I know it's been like a month since it happened. Uh, but I think it is uh, it is representative of, of, of some deeper societal issues that we really have to come to terms with. Um, I think in recent years, especially since probably you know in the post-Trump era, let's call it that, there has been this real tussle between Hollywood and the general public. I mean, when Jim Carrey responded to the thing with Will Smith, he said, you know, I, I don't feel like we're the cool club or we're, in the, we're the cool people anymore or something like that. And I think he's sort of getting at something that, you know, people are really starting to separate themselves from celebrities or at least from actors and from Hollywood and that sort of thing. Uh, maybe finding m more uh, solidarity with um, more boutique uh, influences on Instagram, that sort of thing. Maybe the the TikTok phenomenon has meant that people are okay with um, celebrities only popping up for five, ten minutes and then going away or having having sort of niche um, people that you follow. I mean, I, I've seen this like thing, this almost a bit of a phenomenon on Twitter as well. I mean, the, you know, the idea of fragmentation, you know, uh, social media fueled fragmentation, cultural fragmentation. I mean, that's been going on uh, at, a, at an increasing rate for you know since the since the dawn of um, so, so, social networking. But I've also seen this new thing in Twitter about like it's not even about trying to get lots of followers anymore. It's it's actually about trying to like keep a very distinct set of followers. And and even if it's just like you like it's even if it's specifically just your friends and you actually even if someone asked you you wouldn't gain a, a large followership um even if you wanted it you know I, I think that we are sort of becoming more acute to or more sensitive to you know endowing or, or, or just allowing these individual people um who, who are flawed who we're finding out are flawed via you know like th through uh, non-formal investigations into the you know the back streets of their lives via trawling through all their social media you know I mean there's so many ideas that we can throw up we could really talk about this for about 10,000 hours the way that the society has dealt with celebrity but I want to talk about the way that movies have portrayed that um, specifically movies during the the 2000s I mean not all of the films we're going to talk about today uh, came out in the 2000s but they're all you know they're from the late 90s and mid 2000s when when satire was kind of at its high for some reason I'm not sure why it particularly was. I mean, we can have a talk. We can have a think about that. Um, why, why artists suddenly suddenly started feeling that? I mean, if you think about, you know, obviously the Simpsons is the big one through the nineties. 
And then you've got something like Family Guy, which is also very satirical. And then all through the 2000s, you have this, this huge, uh, you know, you've got all those um, Ricky Gervais, um, you know, The Office, obviously. Um, and you've got, from an Australian perspective, you've got Chris Lilly just killing it all through that time. Uh, and there's actually a character that he uh, portrays in one of his shows that's very similar to one of the uh, characters we're going to be talking about in one of the movies this week. It seemed to be a time where we really were okay with um, being extremely cynical towards uh, ourselves, or not necessarily ourselves, but other members of the community. And I wonder if that would have carried on or, or if it carried on in different ways if we didn't see, um, you know, the, the rise of social media in different ways. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thought experiment to have. Um, but I'm really interesting. Uh, I'm really interested in, and we've talked about this on, on the show before, I'm really interested in finding, is there a way that we can reconcile some of that criticism, some of that cynicism? Um, because I think we are, have come become aware, especially looking back on this period specifically, you know, especially looking at things like The Simpsons and things like that, they're really irreverent, really cynical. I mean, this is um, real David Foster Wallace uh, territory, but, you know, that, that sort of, that, that idea of irreverence and cynicism and irony and these ideas being really just, um, you know, destructing a system, breaking down a system, you know, um, coming after a tyrant but replacing it with another form of tyranny in a way or, or if you if you bring something down there needs to be some kind of redemptive quality otherwise we have nothing left um, you know to do we're just sort of left in this nihilistic trap and that's kind of happened I think I mean like a lot of the, the generation uh, Z um a lot of that, a lot of the cultural ideas that, that, that surround um, that, that that generation, the, the TikTok generation, do have some really dark undertones, and, and I do fear that we have sort of gotten into this situation where we we kind of don't really have a moral framework. I mean, sort of hence hence this show in a way. Um, but I want to see if maybe maybe the art itself that that is being critical does it actually provide some kind of redemptive quality? Are there some insights that we can draw from the films we're going to look at today that that maybe aren't particularly aren't aren't totally cynical? of artistry, of the entertainment industry? Do they have some slither, at the very least, some slither of a redemptive quality that gives us some answer or, or some ideal uh, that we can chase? Um, so let's get onto the films, I think, straight away. I mean, um, the first one we're going to talk about is um, a film directed by Ben Stiller. Uh, from 2008, and that would be Tropic Thunder, uh, it's a, f a film I really, really enjoy. Uh, I, I've gone back to it many, many times. I think it's a little bit of an underrated film. I think there's a lot more to it than people think, uh, so I'm really excited to chat about that. When they're going to move on to a Christopher Guest film from 1996, uh, and it's a, one of these lesser-known ones, I suppose. I mean, people are usually talking about like Best in Show and that sort of thing. Uh, this is Spinal Tap. Uh, but we're going to talk about Waiting for Guffman, and then we're going to finish off with Trey Parker's 2004 controversial film, Team America. Uh, but let's get started now with Tropic Thunder. So if you haven't seen this one, um, I mean, it's a really interesting movie. It, describing what the movie's about, it's like a movie about a movie that was based on um, a book that's supposed to be about a real-life event. Uh, and then um, Justin Theroux, who also who was a big collaborator on this film, I think he was the co-writer of the film, or he was, one, he was at least the executive producer or something, he also goes off and makes a film about the film that the f the film is about. So there's a lot of sort of authorial intrusion and that sort of thing. And I suppose in a really basic and general sense, the film is kind of like a parody or playing with the the archetypal Hollywood war film, uh, particularly the Vietnam War film, but but jungle warfare specifically. So there's a lot of uh, references. Of course, the Apocalypse Now is probably the main one, the Justin Theroux. 
um, his little documentary spin-off of the movie is uh, obviously uh, satirizing. Um, well, it, it's kind of like satirizing a little bit of a Werner Herzog thing, but it, there's obviously, um, you know, it's a massive reference to a Heart of Darkness, the documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now. But there's also a lot of platoon uh, imagery, and I think there's a lot of... Um, Thin Red Line stuff in it as well, and if fans of the show would know that we really love uh, Thin Red Line here, Two Double X, or at least on, on Sacred Cinema. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I love. I, I mean, so I think it's a great film just to go as, as a war film uh, enthusiast to go through and sort of pick all the scenes that come from what and 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 sort of, I, I guess, in, in making in sort of referencing those films and in being a comedy, it is sort of sending up those films. Uh, as much as it's sending up the actors in the films, but I think ultimately the film is ultimately is is at its core a satire of uh, of the Hollywood of Hollywood culture, at least modern Hollywood culture, um, and 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 kind of comes a bit ahead of its time. I mean, what we're talking about before about Will Smith and Chris Rock, and then and the recent tension towards Hollywood and that sort of thing. You know, Ricky Gervais being at the Golden Globe saying all that stuff. You know, all the moral grandstanding on Twitter, all all of those all of those conservative voices kicking hitting back. And and saying, oh, you know, be quiet. We don't need to listen to you. We don't need to listen to your moral arbitration and that sort of thing. This movie comes out in 2008 when that really wasn't a big deal. And I and I suppose because it wasn't so sensitive, Stiller probably thought that it was a good time to make that film. Because, I mean, Hollywood is a crazy place, right? You only need to go on a holiday there to see that it is full of, I mean, I don't want to say full of narcissists, but I mean, it is. Like, it's full of, like, a lot of crazy people, a bit like a bit like Canberra, a bit like Washington DC, right? Like it's full of people who are really hungry for power, a very specific brand of power. Um, so I guess it's always going to be under scrutiny. And I think this was a time where he felt like he probably could get away with it and actually do a pretty deep dive um, into it. I mean, I think this film would work so much better if it came out now, but it came out in two thousand eight, so so that's what it is. But it, but it, but a big part of the film is is is, is diving deep into the, the personalities of the main characters in this film. Uh, that the film is about and you know one of them is Ben Stiller who's sort of this action hero who who really isn't a talented actor he's just sort of like a good looking jacked guy that just likes being likes the idea of being famous he doesn't really have any uh, like it's a really interesting moment in the film where they make a joke about he says like uh, he's on that Tyra Banks show and she says someone close to you said that you're this far away from and I can't remember the line but he's like someone said they were close to me like, and, and, and it is uh, his character is depicted as being someone who really doesn't have friends or family They're, they aren't really his only friend is his agent played by Matthew McConaughey um, so that's his character, sort of this this soulless. Um, he, he sort of has this, this, this vapid existence as someone that just purely wants to be famous and nothing else doesn't want to be virtuous or artistic or anything like that. You've then got um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, who has probably been discussed the most since the film came out, um, and I, I suppose he's sort of sending up that kind of uh, weirdly artistic method actor. Um, stereotype that came out of Australia during like the 2000s like obviously you got like Russell Crowe Heath Ledger to a lesser extent I guess like Eric Banner Guy Pearce like we did have this like weird run of really down and then in terms of uh, female actors we also have like Nicole Kim and Naomi Watts as well like there was this big run of really impressive actors and like actors actors um, that came around that time and I think that that's what they were playing with it like it's kind of quirky kind of weird and obviously he, you know, his, his character gets talked about a lot um, in, in years after uh, because of the whole blackface thing, and we're going to get into that in just a second. And you've got Jack Black's character, who sort of is like the the, the typical, you know, drug obsessed. Um, you know, I guess there's a bit of like a, um, a Chris Farley element to him. Um, maybe a bit of a there's a Belushi element there, uh, and then you've got a couple others that we're not going to get into. Uh, but the main ones I want to focus focus on is Ben Stiller and Robert Downey Jr.'s characters, and I want to talk about them in the context of this idea of of moral systems 
folding onto themselves. So the idea of, uh, of, uh, or, 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 or the idea of sort of when you exaggerate a certain moral system or, or a specific moral, um, the exaggeration of that, or I, I suppose like the um, hyperbolic, because the film is a satire, so it's, it's obviously not realistic, but when you exaggerate that in a comedic sense and you push it to its limit, you know, exaggerating one's sense of morality or one's commitment to virtue, uh, when it goes too far, it becomes offensive. Right, which which seems kind of counterintuitive. Like like you can be so good, you become bad. Right, you 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 push a certain virtue so hard uh, that it becomes and that that's so popular. And 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 you, if you pander too much to what you think people want, um, I, I suppose the idea is that you abandon any sense of artistic integrity, uh, or you abandon the truth. You're just trying to sell. And and when you become over obsessed with selling to the people, being liked by the people, being appreciated by the people, essentially being popular, that in and of itself, I suppose, signals a sense of being disingenuous uh, and that's ultimately sort of selfish in, in a weird kind of ironic way. So I guess one of the ways that we could sum it up is that, that, that emphasizing one moral or one moral framework or one moral system inevitably eats the rest of that system. Right, it, it sort of is. It's quite cancerous in a way. And there's two really good examples of that. The, the first one is um, the blackface thing, which is to say that you know he sees a virtue. This is Robert Downey Jr.'s character. He sees a virtue in being arti- uh, you know, having artistic integrity, or, or, or being committed to to not, not having artistic integrity, but being so committed to a role, uh, being an extreme artist that he goes to the extent of he, you know there's this weird thing in the documentary spinoff where he goes and lives with like this random black family in Galveston and he like interacts with them in their house and it's just like really awkward and I wish they actually put that in the movie um but he he, he goes through this like very controversial surgery to, to 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 make his complexion black so that he can play this role so on paper there you're like oh wow what a virtuous actor to to go through self-sacrifice to completely change his identity for us so he can make a powerful film but you know very obviously that's a you know that's the same thing as what Al Jolson and all those uh, you know, minstrel show like idiots were doing hundreds of years ago, and he can't see the can't see the wood through the trees or whatever it is. So, so I, there's a, it's through that exaggeration of of artistry that he you that you lead to a point of inhumanity. Ironically, when in the same universe where artistry itself is meant to be for the benefit of humanity, and the other really good example I think is the whole um, the the full. Well, I can't say the word anymore, but it's it's not politically correct. But the the simple Jack thing, uh, if you've seen the movie, where Ben Stiller goes off to do uh, a story about someone who is. Um, let's just say has a has a has a mental impairment uh, but it is sort of uh, comedically vague and and obviously he hasn't really he talks about doing the work but like it's just sort of like this caricature of someone uh, who has some kind of mental impairment and there's the the famous scene where Robert Downey Jr talks about him about the difference between doing how how you get an how you get an academy award out of portraying someone with a mental impairment versus just doing a good job or like doing it in a respectful way or just like not doing it at all because it's not something that's within his um, skill set and that sort of thing. So again, we have this idea of, you know, well, well, the metric for a good artist is this specific thing, which is winning this specific award. And so if I can do it in a way that gets me that specific award, that is the means through which I can show the public that I'm actually a virtuous actor, completely missing the fact through that very... Um, that very obscure, very complex thought process that, look, 
for goodness sake, at the end of the day, you're trying to, you're being extremely insensitive towards um, a really vulnerable section of the community, right? You're missing the main, uh, meter, you know, you're missing the main point there. So I, I, I suppose we, and we've sort of, we've sort of theorized what, what that all means. But I guess at this point, we need to start asking questions about, you know, what utility those depictions have. I mean, because it is an exaggeration. Um, this film is a parody. But I don't know if it really is that far off from the truth. If we go back to the Will Smith thing, and I don't mean to sound crazy, but, you know, in amongst this culture of being obsessive over, you know, um, being polite, not being politically incorrect, or, 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 or speaking in a way that isn't violent, um, and, and being, especially when I think there was also a gender element to that whole incident where, you know, he's talking about his wife and the idea of, you know, female protection in Hollywood and that sort of thing. Obviously, he's been misinterpreted by Will Smith to the point that he's engaged in an act that is blatantly, phys like, is blatantly assault, right? I mean, going, you know, letter, letter of the law, completely dismissing the fact that any virtue that is being pursued through his supposed um, chivalry or protective... Um, also, I'm just going to say this. No one said this yet. Why does he call himself... You know, he's like, it's just like in the movie Richard Williams. It's Richard Williams. That, that really annoyed me. And I think it actually... I'm not being so specific. I actually think that's indicative of the fact that he actually didn't know the part that well. Like, how do you not know the name of the guy that you're portraying? It's, it's neither here nor there. I just, I just had to say that. Someone had to say it. it really annoyed me that he got his name wrong in the speech. But anyway, getting back to it. His obsession with protection, his obsession with being chivalrous or supposedly chivalrous completely, is bl completely blinded his sight of you don't hit people. It's just like the most basic moral... Um, premise the moral truth of our modern society i'm not saying one is more right or wrong i'm not i'm not i'm not getting at that. i'm just saying that that obviously the inflation of one moral code or the inflation the inflation of one specific moral rule does inevitably it, it's like the it's like the rights conversation if you emphasize one right if you if you endow society with one specific right you it's like a jenga block you necessarily push out another Right, um, so it is always a balancing act, and I think people think if you completely invest in one specific moral code or one specific moral rule, um, and, and you just promote that incessantly, somehow that 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 magnifies or that 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 inflates your 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 sense of uh, virtue or something like that. Anyway, what I also like about this film is that it provides some kind of redemptive quality in my view, um, which is that eventually these actors actually do embody the people that they're supposed to be portraying, and that calls back to a lot of what we've talked about. Um, in, on this show, especially when we talked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is the idea of, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, when he, you know, actually embodies the characters that he's playing, that's how he becomes more whole as an individual, that's how he makes up for all of the grievances that haunt him. And then there's also a film we talked about in our last episode, Supercop. We talked about the idea of that transcending uh, mortal... Um, obstacles uh, through pure sacrifice, right? By actually genuinely putting your body and your life on the line for your job, for your role that, we, that we've given you signals a, a genuine sense of virtue. And that's what happens in this film when the characters actually go out and actually fight in combat uh, and actually try and save each other from a place of, of good-heartedness, let's say. But but do you, in order to be a good actor, do you actually have to put your body on the line like that? Is that something that's inevitable? Well, at this point, I'd like to move on to our next film, but before we do, just like you remind, I would just like to remind you that you're listening to 2XFM on the 98.3. 
Frequency. Uh, our next film now is Waiting for Guffman from 1996, directed by Christopher Guest. And this is basically just a film about a small town group of actors who um, put on a little performance for their town um, because it's like the 100 year anniversary of their town. And it's this sweet little production. It's very similar to Shit's Creek. In fact, I'm one of the main plot points of Shit's Creek, which has a, you know Catherine O'Hara and, and Eugene Levy and a lot of the same actors. Um, one of the main plot points in that, um, when they did Cabaret in, in that show, is, is basically the, the TV version of this film and vice versa. Um, and, and Guest's character in this film, I have to say, Chris Lilly, like, so 100% just stole this character. I think uh, when he did Mr. G and Summer Heights High, but, you know, that's up to you. You can watch both of them and make a decision for yourself. Um, but the, the film doesn't really make, or at least in my view, the film doesn't really make fun of these actors in that same cynical way that Tropic Thunder does. I mean, it does make fun of them. The jokes are on them in a way. But it's sort of sweet and lovable, right? That these, these sort of cute small town, in the same way if you've watched Shits Creek, they're just sort of this this cute sort of small town group of people that are trying their best. And, and the comedy really comes from the discrepancy between their actual talent and their ambitions. So the whole the whole plot um, does center on this idea. The reason it's called Waiting for Guffman is they find out that apparently some high-end New York um, theater critic is actually going to come and sit in the audience and, and, and watch what they do. And they think that's actually going to Hit them, they're going to hit the big time as a result, which is just like delusional. And that's sort of where all the comedy comes from. Like they think that they're actually genuine actors and that sort of thing. But just playing on that waiting for Guffman thing. I mean, obviously, if you're a big Samuel Beckett fan or just a big theatre fan in general, um, or just, you know, a person that's interested in arts and culture, you would obviously be able to pick up on the play on words there, waiting for Guffman. Obviously, uh, is a reference to the, the, the Samuel Beckett play Waiting for Godot, which gives it this sort of existential edge. And I want to get into that, right? So I suppose what this film does is, is it sort of it sort of accounts for, or it doesn't necessarily justify the Hollywood system, but I think it sort of accounts for it, right? If we do live in a state of nihilism, or at least without religion or, or some kind of um, divine moral framework, we do sort of live in this state of, of nihilism. We don't really know what we do, especially if you live in a small town where things might be a bit mundane and, and a bit boring. You're like, is this all there is to life? And you, you do engage in some pretty you know depressing existential thought processes. You, you do need cultural leaders you do, in, in that sort of Nietzschean sense. We've talked about this many times on the show. You do need people to invent cultural ideas, things to dis- – not, let's say, things to live by, but things to discuss. Um, someone needs to start conversations. Something, someone needs to inspire something in us. And that's essentially what uh, people who are creative, artists or actors, that's what they're doing. They're putting themselves out there to say, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And I, and I suppose that's why being an actor and being in the – you know, being in the in the public view does align with being being some kind of moral leader, um, being someone who uh, you know expresses strong political views on a place like Twitter or something like that, because that's kind of their job in a way, not necessarily in the same, um, not necessarily in the same. Uh, sphere, right? It's, you know, being on television or being in a movie is very different to being on Twitter. But there is that still that gut instinct, which is I'm one of the people that is sort of taking the time and effort to posit some ideas or at least to 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 assert some ideas that you can either, you know, get, you know take or leave. And I think some of them are a little bit more authoritarian than others. But it, it does come from sort of the same, I don't know, the same genetic or the, it comes from the same root, I suppose. So what are we supposed to do with all that? I guess we've started off with this very cynical view of actors being that, you know, that the 
they can be so narcissistic or so obsessive about you know their, their moral righteousness that they, they that they eat their own tail in a way. And then we've gone to this place in Wayne for Guffin when we say, well, you know, really, like it's not acting per se. It's 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 more when it's in that sort of extremely concentrated um, context. But nevertheless, there is this sort of existential condition that we're all sort of tragically waiting out for, which does sort of call in. Um, call in the troops, call in cultural leaders. So how are you meant to view them then? Because we have given them a lot of power, right? Well, let's at least at this point, let's finish off now with Team America, Trey Parker's film from 2004. And, and some people hate this movie. So we're like, this is a stupid movie. I think this is a really, really clever movie. All right. For, to begin with, the whole puppet thing, if you don't, if you have never seen like Thunderbirds or something, it's, it, it's, it's obviously playing on this very patriotic or very classical, classically American um, aesthetic, uh, which is just like a the very like a very basic aesthetic of like American military exceptionalism in a way. It's essentially about this Team America, which is like this this um, army force or whatever, and and obviously the Team America World Police is clearly a. Uh, a, a joke about the idea of Team America being specifically um, re relating to America being the world police. Those two things don't go together. It's satirizing, you know, the Bush doctrine of the early 2000s going to Iraq and all those different sort of things. And, and obviously Vietnam and all the, and a, lot, a lot of the elements that we've already talked about, especially when we talked about Tropic Thunder. But what makes this film to me really interesting is it's not just about a group of like, you know, they knock the Eiffel Tower down, pyramids of Giza, uh, Giza and we all have a good laugh. But it presents the ridiculousness of an actor being the savior of the world. So it's very much playing on the ideas that we've already been talking about. Again, very ahead of its time in my view. Um, the fact that if it came out now, it'd be so much more topical, I think. Um, and that's what I mean when, when I say it came above its time. Because this, this character, Gary, he's like the protagonist. And they, they use this, you know, it, it makes much more sense when they use this stupid uh, Trey Parker, Matt Stone voices where they're like, you know, Gary, we need you to save the world. <laughs> like it's, it's so ridiculous that an actor would actually think, or that, that people would think an actor could save the world. Uh, yet that's what happens, right? We do see that on Twitter and things like that. Um, and, 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 and also... Uh, opposing Team America is this guild of actors run by Alec Baldwin and Susan Sarandon and all these different people. Uh, and again, that is satirical of, you know, sending up, you know, the, the, the massive Hollywood that that is always sort of complaining. And Michael Moore is obviously there and he's a big part of this film. Um, so I, I, I suppose there's no holds barred, right? Everybody is sort of under scrutiny in this film. It doesn't neglect, it certainly doesn't neglect the failings of American exceptionalism, but equally doesn't neglect the failings of um, you know the, the, the liberal media and that sort of thing it sort of makes everyone an enemy and if we're going back to that that idea that we talked about at the beginning with this idea of you know if you if you break every institution down if you're only cynical if you're only critical you're left with nothing but rubble and I think the answer that the film provides to all that is, is encapsulated in that funny speech that Gary gives and that he hears from like a drunken guy in a bar a few nights early before the, the climactic scene of this film where he Let's put it this way. He assimilates all of the people in power, being Team America, these actors, and King John Ull and all these people. He assimilates them with genitalia. And I think it's a really perfect metaphor. When we think about genitalia, uh, it's, it's profound, right? It's something that we think about every day. Uh, it's one of those... You know, when we think about the body, it's one of the, you know, probably the more significant parts of the body. And when we talk about them, I mean, depending what our specific sexuality is... Um, Sometimes we talk about it with great glee and we're very excited about it. And other times, it's, you know, they used to swear words, right? They're these, they're these very powerful concepts 
uh, that are equally as exciting as they are dangerous, right? They're a bit like weapons in a way, as is Team America, as is this, this screen guild of people. So I guess one of the ways to look at this film is that it portrays public power and I suppose public responsibility um, to be necessarily proportionate or, or necessarily warrants the proportionate amount of scrutiny, right? If we give you that much power, be ready to receive the same amount, the equivalent amount in criticism. And that's not to say that there's this equal trade-off where someone does something, we're allowed to completely destroy it. But but the idea is that there is this sort of um, dialectic that has to take place between those in power and those that make up the public. That if you are going to be a cultural leader, if you are going to be a political leader, be very aware. Know that you're signing up to everything being scrutinized because that has to happen. Right? We can't allow so much concentrated power um, to be possessed by specific individuals. Well, that's all we've got time for on Sacred Cinema this week. I've been your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, on 2XFM on the 98.3 Frequency. Thanks so much for tuning in. You can find me on all the major social media platforms. Um, please jump onto the 2XX website. Uh, consider sponsoring the show or subscribing to the station. But until next time, we'll see you again very soon. Cheers.